hello, everyone, and welcome back to a long-awaited edition of the 1010 Project podcast. Uh, we've had a lot going on, you guys. We had two kickoff trips that were amazing. Uh, Josh and I will catch up on those on the next episode. Uh, we've had um, groups going on. We're finishing up a group. We just graduated a group back in December, and we're getting ready for an amazing 2022. And so uh, that's that's what's been going on. Like we told you guys, you never know. We're going to give you great content when uh, we have got it, and it's ready to go. And so this week, we've got something ready for you. Now, I'm pretty excited about this. So as you know, with 1010 Project, we do um, we kick off with an excursion like we did last week with snowmobiling. Uh, get guys um, out in the wilderness, let them start just relaxing, having fun, have a shared common experience, and and catalyze some relationship. Then, every month, we gather everybody that's in the projects, no matter if they have been in eight months or two months, and everybody jumps on for an hour, and this is where Josh and I try to pull from relationships that we have uh, all over, thought leaders, pastors, uh, business leaders, and let them speak into a specific subject matter. In uh, January, we had an incredible opportunity, and so what we thought was we want this uh, to be a podcast interview and a podcast episode with the one and only Eric Peterson. You might recognize that last name, Eugene Peterson, with his father. Uh, He released a book a few years ago called Letters to Young Pastors, and it is awesome. And so uh, Josh Turner, our very own beloved Josh Turner, uh, was able to curate this interview as one of our uh, leadership talks for our guys. And so um, it's really just a great time to hear a little bit more, pull back the veil on the guy that wrote the message version of the Bible and his son and the way they talked about what it means to be a pastor, to be healthy, um, and even just give us some good perspective on leadership and loving Jesus. And so uh, that is the episode today. Before we get into that, a couple things to let you know. I uh, want to say a huge thank you to Help One Now. They were a great partner for us last year in our kickoff year, and I'm super thankful for those guys, Chris Marlowe, Peyton Junk, and the whole team. Uh, this year, we've got a couple new partners coming your way. Convoy of Hope, who I've partnered with for years. They do disaster relief better than any organization, in my opinion, on the planet, and they do it all through the local church. And so Convoy Hope has agreed to come alongside these pastors and leaders and start investing in them uh, as a part of Tencent Projects. So you're here to talk more and more about Convoy of Hope. And as a matter of fact, if you, um, they are currently resourcing churches and places in the Ukraine who are going through this crazy um, war, really, right now and protecting, trying to protect their own country. Um, would you uh, consider looking at convoyofhope.org slash Ukraine? You can find out more of how they're doing it and what they're doing. If you want to give there, that would be the spot to do. And then we also have Compassion International, another organization where I've worked with for over a decade. And uh, they're coming alongside again to serve these pastors, to care for them. And um, they're going to be doing some amazing things with us over the years. So you're going to hear us talk about both those organizations who have agreed to say that there's a need to serve these leaders that we're serving. And um, again, being there last week, watching these guys um, dive into community, but also just uh, start opening up about what's going on in the world. It was absolutely another reminder that what we're doing matters. And so thanks for being with us on this journey. We're super excited about this episode. Uh, and so without further ado, here is Josh Turner talking with the one and only Eric Peterson.
Well, guys, we are um, going to do something a little unique today. Uh, we are actually on one of our 1010 Zoom calls for all of you guys that uh, have heard us talk about 1010 and this year-long process that we have of helping pastors and now business leaders uh, stay healthy in the world that God has called them to. Uh, and I am uh, super pumped uh, because today we are joined by Pastor Eric Peterson. So, Eric, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Good to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, man. No. And so here's here's what we're going to do. Uh, I just kind of went over this with the guys. But uh, if you follow me on Instagram or you've been around me at, at all as a pastor, I talk about this book uh, called Letters to Young Pastors. And it's a book of letters that uh, Pastor Eugene Peterson wrote to his son, Pastor Eric Peterson, about what it means to be a pastor. And I think that all of us that are listening to this, that we would look across the landscape of ministry. And, and for the most part, we can say that we're not doing everything right. And Eric and Eugene just say a lot of things in here that I think are really good uh, for us to wrestle with. And sometimes wrestling is very uncomfortable, uh, but sometimes through wrestling, God leads us to the place that he actually wants us to be, which is a healthier place. So what I'm going to do on this podcast is I'm just going to read some excerpts uh, that I have highlighted. Uh, if you can see on here, I have dog-eared a ton of pages and highlighted a ton of things um, that were really for my own, really my own personal conviction of some of the things that the Lord said to me. And uh, so we're going to dive in. I'm going to read some things. And Pastor Eric, I would just love for you to elaborate. We're just going to start on page seven and we're just going to see how long this goes. And, you know, we're not going to be on here forever. But um, one of the things that your dad says, he says, one of the irritants that got me going in this was my sense that one of the primary seductions to pastoral faithfulness and integrity these days is the drumbeat of emphasis throughout the church and society on leadership. All the books and conferences and tapes on leadership, how to be an effective leader, a successful leader, a powerful leader. Leadership distilled to a technique and strategy and method, and much of it may be most good and useful, but so much of it has little to do with what it means to be a pastor. And, you know, I come from a world and a lot of these guys and a lot of the listeners come from a world where leadership is hammered into us. And one of the things that your dad talks about throughout the book is how the tools of leadership, although some of them are good, they can also fly in the face of what it means to be a pastor. Um, I'd love your your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think my my dad's and my uh, unease with the kind of that leadership culture, which is you know relatively recent, that's 25, 30 years is kind of when it's become more mainstream and more and more pastors are actually able to get a doctorate degree in some form of leadership studies is um, is the underlying assumption that you're you're making something happen you're you're going to accomplish something and these are some of the techniques or the methodologies by which you could be more effective make something happen um, you know grow the kingdom of God um, I mean we always we always couch it in theological language and, uh, and that's the seductive part. I think that's the part that makes us a little bit um, wary about it. So, I mean, I'll back up to, I think it was like 15 or 16 years before he died. And he was still pretty active. He was writing. And it was a season where um, the message had been completed. And so his name was you know, he was well known because of that and was getting these increasingly just these invitations to uh, speak in in these rather large arena type environments. 
And I was over in Montana one time visiting him and he was talking about this invitation he'd received to go somewhere in South America. Yeah. Um, and it was like a 40, 45,000, you know, seat arena. And he's just kind of, he's just sort of hemming and hawing. And, uh, and in my mind, I'm thinking, wow, that's great, dad. You have 45,000 people, you know, multiply your influence, all that sort of thing. And, and, I, and, fi and finally, I just said, dad, what are you, why not just say yes? What are you concerned about? What are you worried about here? What's, what's at stake? And he, I'll just never forget this. He looked me dead in the eye and he said, Eric, I'm afraid of losing my soul. Mm. Um, and so he tasted the celebrity. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he was getting cards and letters from, you know, he's like a rhinestone pastor, right? <laughs> yeah. Cards and letters from people I don't even know. Um, and, and that can, even if you're, you know, older, an elder, wise, sage-like, mature person, that could go to your head. And he knew that he was the primary guardian of his soul. And that there were these seductive influences that threatened to undermine who he was and what God was doing in him and wanting to do through him. And so, I mean, if anyone could handle that, it would, would have been Eugene Peterson. But yeah, that's the moment or that it was through that conversation that he came to a clarity of saying uh, no more. And so he he just, you know, habitually turned down all of those kinds of invitations and only said yes to the ones that were, it would it'd be like preaching the ordination sermon at a former student's um, service when they became a pastor. So these smaller, you know, couple hundred people events or pastor gatherings, uh, little retreat settings. He just kept it very personal and intimate. Um, so I think that's that's Eugene, even toward the end of his life, living what he was writing about, talking about much of his life, and that is um, pastoral work. And that's how he identified, even after uh, retirement from the pastoral ministry, he identified as a pastor, even as a writer, as a professor, his primary vocational identity was pastor. And for him, the only way to do that and I'll just uh, let me just qualify this by saying I'm not sure he would want to prescribe that for everybody. Yeah, yeah. But for himself, uh, the only way to do that is uh, locally and personally. Um, and so that's why he never wanted to serve a church of um, you know of a membership that exceeded his ability to know people's first names. And uh, we we used to joke about this. I would say I feel like. I'm, <clears throat> it's preferable for me <clears throat> to be able to identify households based on the domestic pets. Like if I know the dog, <laughs> yeah. name, uh, that means I've been in their home. And, uh, and so for both of us, that just was the, the, uh, the environment out of which we felt like we were able to bear witness to the gospel, to preach with authenticity, um, but only if you know you're at bedsides in hospitals or near homes or in coffee shops, having those pretty intimate pastoral conversations with people. Um, and so the I think the 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 thing about the, the um, his allergic reaction to so much of the leadership language 
uh, was the way that it um, kind of defied that or yeah. pulled could pull pastors away from that. Uh, and again, just to, you know, I think he says it in that passage that you read from. It's not to say that it's all bad stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's more, I think he just was uh, increasingly wary um, that it can create this illusion of me being in charge rather than God being in charge. And one of the important uh, ways that I've grown, I think, to think about my own pastoral vocation is in the sense of relinquishment. There's just a whole lot that I give up, uh, a lot to which I surrender because I'm not in control. Um, and so this is a, the church that I planted in 1997. I'm still serving. And, you know, I look back on those, whatever that is, 24 years. And um, my goodness, so many surprises. I came in with some ideas of what would happen, but uh, I've mostly been surprised. It's, it's not gone according to my plan. Yeah. Were there other things, um, you know, you, you talk about your dad, you know, protecting his, his heart and his identity. And, and one of the ways he did that was, you know, by saying no to certain things. Were there other things that you saw in him growing up or not even that you saw in him that you've also recognized in your own life that, man, if I do these things, it will really help me stay grounded and rooted in the place that God's called me to? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the nature of discipleship, I think, is knowing what things and people to say yes to and what to say no to. Um, it's, that's the, for me, that's the baptismal dance, yeah. you know, saying yes, saying no. Um, and so, you know, the no's were fairly small in number. I mean, he, he liked to he liked to be available. He liked to serve. Um, I mean, one of the maddening things about him was that he answered the stupid phone during dinner, <laughs> which is like this cardinal rule at my house. Like the phones go off. And this is like a sacrosanct time for the family. And he would get up from the table and answer the stupid phone. And I would, I would just be so irritated. And finally, I said, Dad, you've got an answering machine. This is a landline, you know, back in the day. Yeah. And uh and I said, why, you know, we're, we're here, just be with us. And, and I said, why do you do that? And he said, well, you just never know who's on the other end of that line. Someone might need a pastor. Um, I, I'm still critical of that. I still think that was the wrong approach, but um, that's, a, that's evidence of him wanting mostly to say yes. Um, and it's only later in those, those bigger environments where he was saying yeah. no. But I would say the other thing that he said yes to, or that he affirmed and practiced, um, like no one I've ever known or read about or heard of, is, I mean, he had a, and he, I don't think he ever wrote about this. He, I think he talked about it to very, very few people. He was just very much in the closet um, about this. But he had this profoundly deep um, devotional practice. Um, if you read his authorized biography, mm -hmm. uh, Wynn Collier describes that experience that I had as a young boy trying to sneak up on him early in the yeah. morning to come to breakfast. I, you know, gently turn the doorknob and peek in and, um, and I see him, you know, on the kneeling on this hard tile floor with a Hebrew Psalter in front of him. And he's just sort of rocking 
with a candle over here dripping wax and he's just he's just rocking praying the psalms um and and that still moves me when i think about that memory i was like six or seven years old but that's that's what formed him more than anything else i mean he read a crazy amount of books uh he he had a um you know he had a deep intellect but I believe that it was that devotional practice that was the primary uh, root cause of, of, um, of just his unique pastoral spirituality and just his crazy fertile imagination. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I love about that your dad writes to you a lot in the book is when he's talking about getting invited to these big events or these all these preaching opportunities, these around all these pastors in green rooms or meetings or whatever. He says, I'm often a part of a world that I feel like I don't fit in. Yeah. And, and it, it really seemed like he even back in the you know, back when he was writing this stuff to you, he understood that there was something different that the Lord had wired in him as opposed to the other guys that identified as pastors in the way that they did it. And for, for me, and I'm sure for a lot of these guys on here and people listening, like that was a big deal to recognize because sometimes we find ourselves in pastors worlds going, man, I feel like the, the odd man out here, or I, I feel like, you know, um, there's something differently that God's wired in me. And it makes me feel like at times I can be doing something wrong or that I haven't bought into it. And so it was just super affirming for me um, to hear Eugene Peterson say that, man, I'm in these rooms and I don't feel like I fit in these rooms. So yeah, since his death, you know, I've, I've had access to his journals. He journaled um, like almost religiously. Yeah. Um, and he had terrible handwriting. I, I think I need to hire someone to just decipher it um, because it's a it's a it's a frustrating experience to try to read it. But he confesses that a lot. Yeah. Where he just, you know, I mean, really, it's like, oh, my gosh, Eugene Peterson. And he felt like an outsider in almost every environment in which he was. He found himself the metaphor that I think resonated was. He 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 uh, retired or resigned from his pastorate in Maryland. Did a year as a writer in residence at Pittsburgh Seminary, where he did a lot of the translation work. And then he was trying to figure out, really discern what was next. And there were two opportunities uh, to join faculties. Um, one was at Regent College, where he ended up, but the other one was Princeton seminary which is my alma mater and he um and he talks about the experience of meeting with the search committee and they're at the nassau inn which is this kind of it's kind of smoky old boys club leather chairs you know just a lot of history and snooty stuff and and everyone's sitting around um after dinner i think it is and and they and all the guys i think it's all men have their legs kind of crossed and and he realized that everyone else had long socks that covered yeah. their caps, and his bare skin is exposed. And, and that was just a moment of, of him thinking, yep, even, I mean, it doesn't matter where I go. I'm always, I never quite fit in. I don't, yeah. I'm always sort of this outsider. I don't know the, don't know the rules. Yeah. One of the things that he says about you, um, he says, I've liked the way you keep coming back to baptism as providing the rock bottom definition of the people you are dealing with. 
I've heard you bring the term up several times in the last couple of years in different contexts, and it always sounds so right. It prevents us from taking on reductive sociological and demographic and psychological labels for people. It keeps us mindful that we are dealing with souls, not consumers or achievers or victims or whatever. So for you, why is, and besides just the, you know, the spiritual understanding of it or the theological understanding, what is it about baptism for you that helps remind you not only um, for the people that you're serving, but for yourself that you're dealing with their souls and not just that person's situation or issue? Well, and it's more than that. That is, it's more than just, um, I, you know, I think for me, this is this was a grace that was given to me. When I arrived yeah. here in 97, I was scared to death. I, I did not want to plant a new church that wasn't on my vocational radar, uh, but I got called into this, um, and it, and which is consistent with my journey. That is, reluctance is a is a pretty common aspect of most of my life with Christ. Um, I usually say no and put up resistance. So I came um, reluctantly, but it was also accompanied by this fear of failure. And so I had a lot of anxiety about that, didn't know how to do this. Um, and what I realized early on is that I was tempted to think about people as a means to an end as I need you to show up part of this so that we can make something happen. Yeah. Um, I need people, I need money, I need, you know, a worshiping community. And, and that's just a really dangerous posture in terms of a pastoral relationship to think about people as a means to an end. So early on, I came to realize how inclined I was, this proclivity toward reifying people, um, uh, for what they could do, not who they were. And I was given an opportunity to do some a little, um, just a little grant-based research project for a couple of weeks um, in, uh, uh, at Columbia. And, um, and I just sort of started working out a, an initial sacramental theology around baptism. And then, uh, so that was just this sort of nascent, you know, beginning point, but I, I sort of worked it out. I was just thinking about this uh, regularly. And I would say, uh, without trying, it just sort of happened this way, that this is a congregation that was really founded on the sacrament of baptism and a baptismal identity and discovering or, or uh, developing a life of discipleship of living into that sort of that reality. It's both, a, it's both an identity and a purpose. Um, and so what I, I think what I learned or realized early on is that too many people, too many of us think about baptism as an event, like been there, yeah. done that, got the t-shirt, got the certificate, got wet. Um, and then it's like done. Now we move on. And I want to say, no, this is, this is who we are. We're living, um, wet. We're living that, um, that identity and that purpose of, I mean, it just captures everything. It's like you, you know, you're my beloved son and you, have, I'm well pleased. You're my adopted son and daughter. You're a child of the most high. You're an heir to the kingdom of God. You're, you're a priesthood. Um, just all those rich messages, realities that stand in such stark defiance of the cultural 
messages that, uh, that we tend to be bombarded with, namely that our value is located in what we can produce, what we can consume, and what we can acquire. And baptism just turns all of that on its ear. Um, so that for me was just a gift to kind of yeah. come into that and to just, and I was sort of working it out of my back pocket daily, um, but it's become so integrated now into the life of this community that uh, that people like on the prayer chain, I mean, it just happened the other night. Someone said, thanks for praying for my aunt, Susan. She completed her baptism last night. That's awesome. So let me ask you this kind of back to what you said uh, when you were talking about yourself. You said you realize this thing in you that like people, you could view them as, as means to an end to a certain extent. And I know that I have fallen into that category um, as I was pastoring a church. But one of the things your dad says, I think it kind of speaks to this. I'd love for you to say, he says, a life, a life in which we are careful and attentive to the how as to the what. But we Americans keep doing the right thing in the wrong way over and over and over again. Yeah. And so I'd love for you to speak to that a little bit, because it seems like it kind of lines up with what you're talking about that we, you know, means yeah, to an end. Precisely. Yeah. I, I remember one time he, I don't know if it's in that, if it's captured in those letters or not, but um, he talked at one point or wrote at one point saying, I think every church should have a ways and means committee. Yeah. Because the yep. ways and the means by which we accomplish things are as important as the end or the result. And um, if we're going to be doing, you know, Jesus work or kingdom work, we need to do it in the Jesus way. Because um, we can do some great things for God, but if it's done the wrong way, then it's antichrist or it's, um, it doesn't resonate with the values of the kingdom. Um, so, yeah, that, that um, I just think that's really important that we um that the way we go about our work is um has some semblance of similarity or resonance with how jesus was in the world and it's very much this way of self-emptying of humility of um i mean it's slow and it's patient i mean we, we just never we never see jesus moving any faster than a walk. It was just a pedestrian speed. And I think that's the pace of pastoral work. It's a, you know, we show up daily. Sometimes it feels like a grind. Um, I'm a, I'm a mountain climber. And that's one of my metaphors for pastoral work is, and when you're at 12,000 feet and above and you're just sucking air, it's not fun. Yeah. And you just put your head down and you take a step and you breathe and you take a step and you breathe. And eventually you get to the summit. Um, but it's not fun. No one loves that part of it. Uh, but that's the that's the pace, and that's how you get to the summit. So let me ask you: If I love that you said Jesus, he was at a pedestrian pace. In your own opinion, um, where do you think that's gone wrong? Why why do you think? And I know that's a, maybe a big blanket statement, but you know when we live in the world where everything is big and everything is success, and success look like numbers, and success look like big buildings, um, the way that we have kind of prescribed it, so to speak, of what success looks like in the church world in America. What do you feel like? What are the shifts that you have seen over your pastoral career in that area? Because I'll be one hundred percent honest, I one hundred percent bought into that for numerous years. And then I step away from it and I look back and it was like, holy cow, I was indoctrinated into beliefs that I didn't even know I believed. 
and it just seemed normal. So what, what have you seen in that area? I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask because I've really not been immersed in that world yeah. so much. I've really kept my head down. I'm under the radar. Nobody really knows who I am. Um, I serve a, a modest-sized church. Um, I mean, I, I speak at places around the country rarely. Um, I'm just not known. And so I'm not in that world so much. But it's not hard for me to... I'm, I mean, I'm prone to it as well. I don't know that yeah. anyone's immune from it. Um, I just know that that I need to stay out of it if I'm going to stay healthy. And um, I mean, I just, I think we, you know, we want to make a difference. Um, yeah. We want to, especially as we get older, we think about legacy. Like, what did I do? What did I accomplish? What do I leave behind? Did I make a mark on the kingdom of God? And if that's our sort of ambition or desire, then I just think there, there's, um, uh, that's where we're more prone to, adopting some of these technologies, methodologies, ways and means to be effective. Um, and so I have colleagues who you know, have bought into the leadership um, model of church growth and leadership stuff. And they, and, you know, they talk about leveraging relationships. And, um, and you know, for me, I, you know, I don't say anything, but that feels like, oh, you just, you just spit on that person's baptism. Um, yeah. leverage people you you honor people you look for the imago day in individuals and you lift up and celebrate um how christ is working through them um and the circumstances of their lives that are forming them to be more um like christ so i i mean i don't I, I mean, I think it's an intentional thing where we just have yeah. to put up some resistance and say, you know, the prayer of Jabez is not for me. Lord, don't enlarge my territory. Just give me what you want, what you know that I can handle. Yeah. So your dad says this in one of the, um, the letters. I think it says letter 18. He says, in making these observations, which I've been thinking about a lot, a lot lately, I realize how dangerous this pastoral work is in which you and I are engaged and how we are never out of danger. Or maybe just when we think we are out of danger, we are in the most danger. What would you say? I mean, because like we were talking about earlier, you know, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, a few of us had a friend fall in ministry this past week. And like I said, it was the, the third guy for me in the past week or so that, you know, has had to step down because of different whatever the situation may be. And so what would you say, like this danger that your dad talks about so much of being in ministry, um, what would you say that it is or that he thought it is for both of, you know, for both of you? Yeah. I mean, I think it's fundamentally just the fact that our souls are prone to seduction. We, mm -hmm. we gravitate toward, um, you know, power and control and effectiveness and success. Um, I was doing some officer training last night for new deacons and elders, and and I and I'm you know I come out of the reform tradition. I talked about one of Calvin's gifts being, um, you know, given to us that we've inherited as is that of really having a, a profound respect for our fallen nature. Um, and so when he talks about total depravity, he, he's not you know he's not saying that we're all completely 100% messed up. He's just saying that every part of our being and every aspect of creation has been affected and tainted by sin. 
And what we know, if you read any history, is that it's almost impossible. There is very, very few exceptions to this, that whenever power gets located or centralized, it tends to go off the rails. It tends to get abused. Um, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the reason that I'm still a Presbyterian is because um, in addition to what I think is good theology is this, this way with the, that we govern ourselves. You know, we, we spread the, the power and we have built-in systems of checks and balances so that hopefully no one person can do too much damage. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, it, it just helps to mitigate against that. Um, so I, I just think we need to recover a healthy respect for our sinful fallen natures. Um, and I'm, I'm one of the first people in my tribe to say, we don't start there though. We, we start with original blessing. We talk yeah. a lot about original sin, but I want to make sure that we're, that we're celebrating original blessing and the, uh, the beauty and the goodness that is, that remains intact not only in uh, creation in its entirety, but in our own humanity. One of the things, and then uh, I'll kind of, we'll, we'll end with this, because I think it's important, you know, for, for not only for you to speak to this, but it's what, you know, 1010 um, Project, what we're trying to do is help guys build in healthy rhythms of rest, healthy rhythms, healthy friendships uh, that kind of help them, you know, go the distance. And so your dad in the, the 28th letter to you, he talks about a friend uh, that comes and does a sabbatical with he and your mom, um, I think out in Montana, and he was with him for three weeks. Uh, and at the end of it, he says this one sentence, he says, um, but the most important thing for both the congregation and himself, speaking of his friends, was the realization that he was not, that he wasn't indispensable. And so this, this guy is telling your dad that like one of the best things that could happen on my sabbatical is for my congregation and myself to remember that God could always raise up somebody else. And would you speak to that? And then also the importance that you think that pastors find a healthy rhythm um, of ministry in their life. There was a, uh, a break there. Um, Josh, we're yeah. lost part of you, but I think I got the gist of what you're asking. Um, yeah, so I've been curious about this. I don't know, you know, where this started. This is a little research project I want to do some days to understand how it is or when it was, how it came to be that pastors' names got associated with churches. You drive by a church and see the reader board of some kind, and it's got the pastor's name on it. Um, and that just has, has increasingly struck me as kind of odd. Like, whose church is this? Mm. And uh, so when we got to a point of putting up a sign finally on our church site, this little sign committee came to me and said, do you want your name on the sign? <laughs> and I said, well, um, is it my church? And this person said, well, no. And I said, um, is there anything about my name that you think brings people to this church? And they said, nobody knows who you are. And I said, "What?" Well, and I said, "Is um, do we want? Do we think about this as a pastor-centered church?" And she said, "Absolutely not." So I said, "Well, I think that's your answer, right?" Um, so what we, you know, one of the things we know sociologically is that founding influences, especially with a long tenure, um, have 
I mean, our fingerprints are just all over the organization. And that's why we are uh, here going to be co-passer to be my successor. We'll overlap for some season, maybe a couple of years, um, because I we just know that it's a tricky thing to follow a founding influence who's been around for a long time and who is you know relatively well loved and respected. So we're hoping that that's going to help ease that transition so it's less disruptive. Um, but I feel like even though I'm not a charismatic person, I'm not a like a personality. People are not drawn to me. I'm a pretty low-key, modest, humble, I'm actually a pretty shy person. Um, I've had to work pretty hard to avoid this becoming pastor-centered in any way. I was sobered in reading the biography of Mark Matthews, who was the pastor of the largest, then, then largest Presbyterian church in the country during the progressive era. And and even though it became so large, and it really was a mega church, over 5,000 members, nothing of any consequence happened at that church without crossing his desk. So he was just, even though it was a mega church, he was still, it was a pastor's church. And, um, and what was interesting to me, and this is what just sobered me, was uh, to see how when he died, um, while still working, that is, he, was, he died in the pulpit, so to speak, that you can just look at the demographic data and it's, it's, it's just been declining ever since to the point now where that large building is just cavernous. Um, it's dying. So I just, I just think that we need to be, we need to stay out of the way. We need to get out of the way. We need to allow failures to happen. We, I mean, I, I go to one, um, I go to like one committee meeting a month. <laughs> That's it. The elders lead the, uh, the congregation's ministry. I moderate the session and I do some training and I lead the staff, but I, um, and but but as a result, there are some elders who are aren't that effective, or who aren't that, um, or don't have time, or just uh, aren't working. And um, and I've had to force myself. This is a part of my own discipline: is I've had to allow things to not happen, allow allow some things to fail, um, because of out of this concern that if I intervene, if I step in, if I do it, then. Um, then that'll uh, set a pattern or an expectation. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the book right now um, and the author, but uh, I'll come up with it in, like after we get off Zoom. But he, he talks about the pastor who is really talented, really ambitious, does everything, and the congregation sits back and applauds and tells everyone how great their church is and and then he says, and the church dies on the vine. Yeah. Um, the, when I was an associate pastor for seven years, the senior that I worked with said, he just walked into my study one day and kind of off the cuff, he kind of said, you know, Eric, I think every pastor should be a little bit dumb and a little bit lazy. And I said, well, I've got both those things going <laughs> for me. <laughs> Because um, he said, if you're if you're too smart and if, if you're too ambitious, then everyone will just let you do it. They'll just live their life and faith vicariously through you, and pay you, and be happy to have you do it all. Um, do you so that, think 
one, one of the things that your dad talks about too in the letters with you is he talks about this idea of the consumer mentality of church. And do you think that that plays a large part into it as like, if you are good and if you are gifted and if you are, you know, um, charismatic or whatever, that the people are just happy to come and just sit and not have to really go deeper in their walk with the Lord. Yeah. I think that's precisely right. Yeah. Well, um, Eric, I just want to thank you so much for, for joining us and, and speaking to these guys and, you know, we're going to we're going to pause the recording here in a second so that these guys can ask you questions. Charlie probably has 37. Um, but we really man, I, I hope that for everyone that's listening to this, that you realize that there is a a call that isn't just leadership, but it is pastoring and being a good steward and a shepherd of the people that God has entrusted you with. So thanks for listening and we will see you next time. Awesome. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Eric. And uh, again, you can keep up uh, with all the things at 1010 by going to 1010project.com, the number 10, the word 10project.com, or follow us on Instagram at 1010project. Just 1010project, not.com on Instagram. See, it's late. I'm tired. I'm trying to get you uh, some high quality content. So thanks for being a part of this journey with us. If you uh, ever get um, the inkling to go and uh, write a review for this podcast or uh, share it with others. We'd love for you to do that. We'd be grateful for it. And uh, we're going to keep pushing away. We've got a couple episodes that are getting recorded right now and put in the can. And so we're excited to share those with you coming forward very soon. Have a great day and we'll see you next time. I saw you the other night down the street you were walking I remember when I held you tight I felt like a millionaire And you were laughing and carrying on The sky was pink and yellow And I'm okay but it hurt you're gone I just took a deep breath and stared I'll get over you in time I'm not ready I'll get over you in time So